And welcome to another exciting episode of Battle of the Atom. This is your all-new, all-different X-Men podcast where we rank every story from A to Z. I'm Adam. And I'm Zach and Adam. Hey, Zach, are you excited for like the most amazing episode of our podcast ever? Adam, I am fire and life incarnate right now, now and forever. <laughs> uh, and that's that's because today... Well, let, let's go back to what you guys are going to run into this week. This week, Dark Phoenix is going to come out. Uh, is tentatively the last X-Men movie from Fox, as assuming that New Mutants just never comes out forever until the heat death of the universe. Oh, uh, boy. Which, which is the track it's on, as sad as that is. <laughs> but we decided, in honor of that, to bring in a extra-dimensional force, a Phoenix force of our own, to imbue this episode with... So much energy and so much excitement, and we cannot be more excited to have him on here. It is Jay Edden. Jay, how you doing? Um, now I'm kind of worried that whatever I say, it's going to be anticlimactic. But thank you so <laughs> much for having me on. This is um, I'm really, really happy to be here, and also really excited to be talking about not just the Dark Phoenix saga, but some of some of my actually favorite What If issues. Really? Ooh. All yeah. right. All right, I'm, that's great. I'm excited about that. So for people who don't know, and guys, I'm just going to kind of put the cards on the table. If you're listening to our podcast and don't know who Jay Edidin is already, y'all, you got like 250 very good other episodes of an X-Men podcast to enjoy. Uh, <laughs> Jay is the co-host of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men. Do you want me to do the official patter? Yeah, yes. Yes. It's a weekly walk through the ins, outs, retcons, clones, and time travel of comics' greatest superhero soap opera featuring convoluted continuity, creator interviews, cultural context, and more. <laughs> That was been doing this for been doing this basically nonstop for five years. So at, at oh. this point, I can I can do that in my sleep. Wow. Well, um, and Jay, it is awesome to have you here because um, this is kind of like a monumental deal. Since we started the show, people have been telling us to do Dark Phoenix, and the time has finally arrived. So um, we definitely appreciate your expert expertise as uh, as we talk about this story and some of the ancillary stuff so i'm looking yeah. through the rankings and wondering sort of what's in line to potentially be upset today oh, oh a boy. lot of stuff i'm going a to lot say of stuff. Yeah. yes um so why don't we just get right into it our first story today is the dark phoenix saga by chris claremont john byrne and terry austin uh terry orzakowski glenn oliver does some colors in here um i'm looking at my seventh printing uh yes chris Hassan, my seventh printing not my first printing of my uh my trade paperback here which doesn't include the covers for some reason that, that annoys me uh those are some I, good covers oh man yeah. this is good comics people so uh let's start with what happens because it's I was noticing this as I was rereading it. It's broken into three real acts. Uh, it's the first. The first three issues are the X Men go. They split up to recruit Kitty Pride and Dazzler, and then Emma Frost shows up in her first appearance, kidnaps everyone. Uh, while they go through, and you start to see, oh, Jean, who this is her first time really being back 
with the team. She was there for the Proteus arc uh, before this, but Jean just kind of going a little bit harder, a little bit heavier than anyone's ever seen her go before. Then it jumps into the Hellfire stuff where the Hellfire Club attacks them. Jean gets put in some uh, some bondage gear and becomes, you know, the uh, Black Queen. Yells at everyone, sets things on fire, and then turns into the Dark Phoenix. And I think we know how this ends with Jean on the moon with Scott. And it's it's one of the most iconic stories in comics. And, like, I don't think a recap does it justice. I think you need to go find these issues and read them. One of the things that always gets me about the Dark Phoenix Saga is that, first of all, how how long after the Phoenix Saga it is. Because you think mm-hmm. of them as kind of attached stories, and there's a couple years between them. Mm-hmm. But second, how early the seeds of it start being sown. I went through this a while ago, and I think the first time, I'm trying to think of, of the first time that we actually see Mastermind starting to stalk Gene. And it's 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 back in like 125 or something. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a long thing. It's something that you can tell Claremont and Byrne were building up on this, uh, and for what it's worth, it really worked. I mean, if the if the Phoenix story was really the first time they got to uh, or Clint at least got to kind of push things as a creator with uh, you know sending him out into space and the stuff with Eric the Red and all the initial seeds he was pushing. This is the big close of Claremont's, no, I know how to do comics, and I'm the biggest thing now. Uh, And it works really well. I think what's interesting for me is how it builds up. Because the first three issues, reading them again, I was like, okay, these are good, but I don't know if I would put this in all-time greats. Then I moved into the next the Hellfire Club stuff, which has that that issue with Wolverine uh, being alone in... One of the two issues of X-Men that I have signed by Chris Claremont, because it's that's an issue that has literally changed comics. We we talk about the Dark Phoenix Saga ending being a big deal. That turned Wolverine into a thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the Hellfire Club uh, section of the, um, you, you know, if we're breaking this into the three arcs, I think is the most exciting of the three, um, because it's kind of shocking to see how successful the white queen is first of all in the first attack in the first arc, but then in the second act, when they actually face off against the hellfire club, they take the X-Men down pretty easily. Um, And, you know, it's great to see how they rebound from it, but it does seem as if they really are at the, you know, the end of their rope. Um, So for them to get through that and then to have the dark Phoenix pop out and decide to say, Hey, I'm hungry. I'm going to go eat a son kill some broccoli people um, and lead to this like huge climax. This thing flies uh, and it's so involved and in, in coming back to all of these little points that he'd been, um, you know, planting along the way, like this whole bit about spying on the, on the, uh, the danger room to see what their different um, powers are and how to react mm-hmm. to them. And now they know how to take them out. Um, it's really cool to see all of that come together here. Yeah, it's the if if Claremont's got a narrative analog in this story, it's definitely the Hellfire Club. I mean, they've been laying the groundwork of the Dark Phoenix saga. To say as long as he is kind of ignores the fact that he's the one writing, but <laughs> it's amazing how much deliberate planning went into this. The thing that blows my mind about the last arc of the Dark Phoenix saga is the editorial and creative back and forth on it. And how close it came to not ending the way it did and how much the way it ultimately ended was 
to fix basically a narrative problem or a problem that was a result of a mandate from Jim Shooter that Phoenix had to die after what she did. And so everything else was built up to answer to that. And I, I think that ending, it works so well. So for the people who may not know the history behind, you know, the, I guess the, the inside baseball of Dark Phoenix Saga, it wasn't going to end with Jean dying on the moon. That was not the original plan. Uh, it was going to be Jean getting depowered. There's, there's pages that have been released of that being what was going to the printers. Now, the editor- No, it was, she was originally going to die, and then Claremont, at the last minute, suggested her getting depowered as an alternative. Okay, that's, but that's what got drawn then. Got it. Yeah. See, this is why we brought in an expert here to bring in that nice little color. <laughs> uh. But the, uh, you know, that, that pitch by Claremont uh, got approved by their editor at the time, Jim Salakrup, uh, who then left the book and left uh, Louise Simonson holding the uh, bomb when uh, Jim Shooter found out and said, no, she has to die. Uh, she killed a lot of people. We can't have her being a hero. Uh, so between uh, Shooter and Claremont and everyone, they were doing this big back and forth and decided, okay, then she has to die. Which is kind of bonkers if you think about it, like that kind of moral relativism that, you know, she wiped out this planet. So, you know, we have to get rid of the character is really interesting because if you think about the, you know, the the realm of the anti-hero that we have sort of become to live in uh in comics book world and how we really don't care necessarily when you know bishop is genocidal we're allowed to hit a reset button on him and say ah oh, bishop's cool again you know um you don't have an editorial mandate that says no you know that character has to pay for his crimes but here we found that and ultimately i think it makes for a, a much more satisfying ending yeah, I agree. And it, it's an ending that creates consequences and ends not only the arc of the Dark Phoenix saga, but in a lot of ways, an entire era of X-Men. Like this Absolutely. is the, the, the break and sort of the conclusion of kind of the first big Claremont stretch. And when the team picks up again afterwards, like it's a really different dynamic and it's a really different book and it's telling a really different kind of story. Well, and Zach, you mentioned this on uh, social media the other day that, you know, the issue with Wolverine um, and getting him to cut loose and starting to kind of up the ante on the violence um, in the book really does set a new tone. You know, we, we've got Kitty coming in, too, as sort of the uh, the POV character. But this idea that the X-Men are going to cut loose a little bit more um, and not be traditional superheroes along the lines of the Avengers or Fantastic Four, it sets the the book apart from the other things that Marvel was publishing at the time. And I think that is a big part of why it was so popular. And I think for for me, one of the things I love about it compared to like the Avengers, or the, to a lesser extent, the Fantastic Four, this is deep emotional stakes for the X-Men. Yes, end of the day, they have to say, oh, well, she could kind of destroy a lot more sons. But this is more about the X-Men saying, this is our friend. This is someone we have been around for a while. We we need to take care of her. We need to help her out. And fighting between that, battling that, it's that found family aspect that you don't get in the Avengers or something like that. It's just, this is not just someone they work with. This is one of their closest people, their most trusted people. And she is uncontrollable at this point. Now, what I really like about it is, you know, Jean's, 
not in this story a lot. Like the Jean that we have known for the last little while, she really only appears and gets screen time in that last issue in yeah. 137. But the Jean we get there is so true in like, that is forever and ever what the character is going to be. She's, you know, fighting between stuff. She's angry at her situation. She wants to battle against it. Uh, but at the end of the day, she's selfless and she's going to do what's right for the people around her and for, you know, everyone to be like a real hero. Well, it is interesting. One of the things that I, uh, I'd kind of forgotten about, I mean, I've read this story so many times, but it, it was remarkable to me how much of the Jason Wingard stuff is in this story. Yeah. Um, and I know we'd been leading up to it, but it's kind of amazing that there are like these full scenes that take place within the 18th century um, and these like pseudo flashback, uh, you know, mind warping things, even to the point where Cyclops has to battle out of his own quote unquote death, um, you know, after he sword fights, uh, you know, Wingard in this void, you know, it, it's just interesting that that's such a huge part of this story um, that also then concludes by fighting on the moon. You know, like it's kind of amazing that this story covers so much ground um, in the issues. One of the things that's really fascinating about the story, you were talking about it being about the X-Men fighting to protect one of their own is that it's such a contained story. I mean, it's happening on the astral plane, in the moon, in the, and I, I, I really want to make sure that this isn't heavy scare quotes, 18th century. Um, mm -hmm. But there, there aren't really civilians in it. And they're not fighting to protect a world that hates and fears them. And they're not fighting for the cosmos. And they're not fighting against invaders. They're fighting against people who are very specifically coming for them. Right. Because they're the X-Men. Or who they're going after in context of being the X-Men. And it kind of, it, it almost feels private in a way mm -hmm. that yeah. stories this big very rarely are. I think, I think an important like example of that in the, in the story and part of, part of this is a plot device, but it works really well. The Avengers do get called about all this stuff, but it's yeah. beast who's sitting there and he says very specifically, this isn't, this isn't for them to deal with. They mm -hmm. don't, they don't get to deal with Gene. I, I'm going to help the X-Men. It's a very good moment. Yeah. Well, and it also gets very personal too. You know, later on in the story, when we have Jean visiting her family um, as the Dark Phoenix and is, you know, trying to explain to them kind of what she is, but can't process it. And they're scared out of their minds. You know, like there's, there's a human level to this. And, it, you know, it speaks to that intimacy that you were talking about, Jay. Yeah. And it's, it's that way. It's especially that way in the hard scenes, like the, the extent to which it's about family trauma and loss is really jarring. And especially, I mean, reading this for the first time as a kid and going back to it much older as an adult, I think the, those dynamics become a lot clearer. Mm -hmm. Like, especially that scene of Jean going back to her parents' house because I feel like that's a scene that a lot of us going back to it in our going back to this by our thirties have some kind of analog for, if not in our own experiences, then in you know, with the people around us and lives and families of having someone who's violently out of control, showing up out of nowhere. Mm. Mm. And like the, the weird dynamic of that and the, especially the weird dynamic of it being someone who's, who, who's, who's come, trying to come back home and obviously trying to 
establish some kind of normal or some kind of reconnection and can't quite get past that. Like that's, yeah, that's, that's a scene that's, that definitely hits a lot harder and a lot differently later. Well, I think that speaks really um, poignantly to the fact that the majority of the story, not only are the X-Men trying to kind of like save and protect Jean, but they're put into multiple situations where they have to be the, you know, the group that is going to take her down. You know, they have to protect New York from Dark Phoenix, who's, you know, tearing apart Central Park. They have to be the ones ultimately on the moon to say like, hey, maybe we need to like, maybe we need to take her out. Um, And maybe that's the best thing that we can do for her and for the universe at large. And that's a pretty big statement, um, you know, to say that the best way to protect this person that we love is maybe not in every you know it's everyone's best interest versus not hers it it's those really good scenes uh before the big battle where all of them are conflicted about like look gene gene as phoenix did some horrific things she's also their friend and they know there's a lack of control and they know that you know this isn't her fault from some points of view so how do they reconcile that and where do they stand and i think those quiet moments are probably the best moments in this book. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that most people consider this the best X-Men story of all time. Um, but before we rank this, I just want to uh, talk to Jay for a second here. I think on a recent episode, you may have said something to the effect that you thought that the Brood Saga was better than this. And I, I was wondering if you could like elaborate on that a little bit. So... I think especially when you read them in order, the Brood Saga marks a really distinct step in Claremont's ability as a storyteller and the range he's got to work with and the ways that he uses it. And that he and Paul Smith in that story are just incredibly tightly in sync. They're doing things that are, are medium-specific in ways that, that Claremont especially hasn't up until that point. In terms of just sheer technical storytelling, I think the Brood Saga is tighter. Hmm. Okay, interesting, bold. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna. Say, I don't think it's more iconic. I don't think it's more important, and I don't know if I like it more. But I think it's. I think it's a, a. I think it's technically a better story. I think that's fair. I mean, what you're describing, especially with what you know, Paul Smith is able to pull off in those last couple of issues of of the Brood Saga is is pretty impressive. Um, I think that this particular story it it stays with people like there is oh yeah uh, besides just the shock there's, factor, there's a re- there's a reason that this is the story that they have done twice in films and of the four you know x-men series they did it or followed directly from the aftermath of it in three of them and we're planning to do it in the next season of the other one like there's a reason it's this story oh it is it's unquestionably the signature x-men story yeah i think that it's hard to ignore that um you know and it part of it has to be you know the the historical idea that this death counted you know and it counted for a long time um and it kind of broke a rule that death i mean it's not that it has never been done before but that a death of an important character could matter that much and shock so many people um you know, at the time of publication. And I think that that has stood the test of time, even though it's been retconned. Um, But the story itself holds up incredibly well 
Um, we can talk a little bit later. I know you wanted to to get into uh, the adaptation aspect of this, Zach, when we mm-hmm. start talking about the movie later. But, um, you know, it's it's not an easy story to interpret. Um, it's very nuanced. It's very layered. And it's so complicated that I I, I don't envy anybody trying to distill it into something else. Um, so but that that for that reason alone, it, it makes it joyous to read read it all the time because it does have so much to offer and and has so much to uh you know every page flip is something really really fun and cool the one format i've all the one the one thing i've always wanted to do like my one of my sort of weird back burner projects is to write it as a radio drama oh to to adapt it as a radio drama because i think that i think i can think of ways that that could work Mm -hmm. as a very direct adaptation of the comic that other media wouldn't necessarily but that's 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 sort of in the I'm gonna I'm I'm saying it aloud, so now I'm gonna have to do it at some point or people are gonna start <laughs> That would be but amazing. Yeah, I, I really I really I really wanna do that eventually. Oh, that'd be yeah. great. Um I'm just gonna put it out there. I think, you know, right now we have Days of Future Past at number one. I think this should be number one on the list. Zach I think that we have 231 stories on our list from currently Days of Future Past all the way down to uh the Draco, which is Ugh. Not good. I got <laughs> I got someone to read Holy War and the Draco uh th- today. Oh God! Why? Why? Because who, I who who do you have that much against? <laughs> I didn't. Okay, listen. You'll appreciate this. Uh, have you heard the fan theory that some people have been yelling incoherently about how the Jonathan X Men Hickman X Men are going to be living on Mars? They've been talking about how the X-Men are going to be living on Mars since, what, AVX? Yes, yes, yes. Well, somebody has been yelling about that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, then somebody decided to put together how there's a red Nightcrawler in one of the uh, stories, in Powers of Ten, and Nightcrawler was a priest once, so technically they could have a red mask for Mars. Uh, just like the Jonathan Hickman story, because I wanted to make a pun, and that got uh, that got someone thinking. Wait, can Nightcrawler still do mass? And then he had to read all those priest, stories. Though. Can can you guys clarify this for me? He's, Wasn't that I'm an illusion? Pretty it sure that was an illusion. That's what I thought. I didn't think well, it was. Whether real. people remember that it was an illusion varies. So it's been referenced. He's been referenced as as being ordained at other times, but uh, the okay. one story where it's actually discussed and confirmed. It's as an illusion. It's 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 one of those details that's handled really inconsistently, sort of like Bobby Drake's religion. Yeah, oh, that makes me feel better. I didn't remember that incorrectly. All right, it's a bad story, Adam. I mean, we haven't gotten <laughs> the Holy War yet. Thank no. thank, thank the Maker, but uh, it's coming. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking at our top ten right here. The number ten is the uh, bar story where Colossus and Juggernaut get into a fight. It's okay. a very good standalone. That's that's the one that has the uh, that the, that was my Sunday punch line. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then above that, we've got the Dark Angel Saga from Uncanny X Force, which I think this is better than mm-hmm. it uh, is. Well, and also I feel like this automatically gets a seat above that just because that's so heavily influenced, referential this. to this. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's an amazing story in its own right, but it's a story that would not and could not exist or have the impact it does without the callbacks to the Dark Phoenix Saga. Right. Eight, we've got Messiah Complex. 
Uh, seven, we've got worst X-Man ever, which, man, we really liked. I need to reread that again to make sure I still like that as much as I thought I did. It holds up. It's freaking awesome. <laughs> uh, six is Riot at Xavier's. Number five is the Claremont Miller Wolverine. Four is X-Men New Mutants Asgard War. Woo-hoo. Interesting. Now, if you, Adam, Personal fave. <laughs> Adam loves it a lot. Adam loves it a lot. Uh, and you think this is better than that, Adam? Uh, yes, definitely. Yeah, I think I think this is better than Gifted. I oh, do yeah. too. And and I think w- well, I think as with as with um, as with the Dark Angel saga, the Whedon run is so so heavily informed by and building on the foundation of this stuff that it's it's oh, hard to rank it relative. Yeah, that's so, true. Honestly, I think shocking no one, <laughs> Dark Phoenix Saga is our new number one on this list. I think, I think it has to be. It was inevitable. I mean, that's why we rate, waited nearly 100 episodes. We didn't lead with it. Well, people have been asking us, like, why isn't Dark Phoenix Saga your number one? And the reason is we haven't talked about it. So now we've talked about it. Um, and so, there you go, guys. One thing I want to put in perspective. Yes. But just from a timing standpoint, it's within a 12-month period that Dark Phoenix Saga, Days of Future Past, and God Loves Man Kills come out. Does anyone have a better year? Wow, that is nuts. That's ridiculous. Isn't that crazy? That was what was that 1981? Uh, like 80, uh, 81, 82. Because uh, God Loves Man Kills is the end of that. Uh, and that came out still within 12 months of the end of Dark Phoenix, at least. Yeah, I know the I know the Brood Saga is 82 and I know it for the stupidest reason ever, which is that Miles and I decided that there were there was an X-Men equivalent to like birth year horoscopes. Okay. <laughs> um, wherein, wherein your your X your X sign was what was based on the story arc that came out when you were born, and mine is Brood Saga. Oh, I um, love that. So that's that's Fall eighty two. Oh mine is Mutant Genesis, and that's a pretty strong one. There you go. That, yeah, that's on our list. <laughs> um, so we wanted to talk about some of the sort of like ancillary stuff that goes around. Uh, Dark Phoenix. So what else did we pick here to talk about, Zach? Because this is we've got some kind of interesting, weird things here. We did. Uh, I I know we actually we actually batted back and forth what we wanted to pair Dark Phoenix with because it is such a big story. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I said, well, you know, Claremont likes Dark Phoenix. What would he pair it with? And what he chose uh, was a backup story in classic X-Men 43. Now, Classic X-Men, for the first 43 issues, did like 10-page backups that sometimes tied in with the stories that they were attached to and sometimes didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one definitely does. This is by Claremont with Mike Collins and Joe Rubenstein. And uh, it's it's interesting. What happens here? Because this takes place right at the end of Dark Phoenix Saga. Well, this is a really strange sort of... Um little existential short story that we get here of gene experiencing something after death. Um, and I think it's notable that like we're in sort of the latter section of these backup stories. Um, I've spoken on the show many times about my reverence for these backup stories, especially the early ones, uh, with John Bolton doing the art. I absolutely love them. Um, I don't always love the stories and like what they're saying or what they're trying to retcon, but a lot of them have so much heart to them. Um, 
but this is um, the reprint in classic X-Men of the final issue of the Dark Phoenix saga. And we have uh, Jean appearing in sort of this otherworldly realm in space with um, basically one of the property brothers um, from (laughs) (laughs) who, you know, and we, we always talk about Thanos being in love with death and she always appears as like sexy skeleton lady. But um, this time it's a dude with a tank top and a bandana around his neck with eye beams. He's, Um, he's much more in the spirit of, of the cowboy who Daniel Moonstar occasionally runs into. He's very in the spirit of that cowboy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, they, they kind of have a, a chat. Um, <laughs> I don't know. You, they just kind of talk while building a building of death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's death. I think that he's asking her to confront whether, you know, she is an agent of death. Um, and, um, I, I don't know. It's a, such a strange thing. I mean, I, I wonder what Claremont was really going for with this particular um, little addendum here. It's very odd. What year did classic X-Men 43 come out? 90, I think. Okay, so this was, this was well after the Phoenix retcon. So he would have known when he wrote this that this is Phoenix and not Jean who's having this conversation. Which makes yeah. the which makes the line where he straight says that Gene where Gene in this says, no, that wasn't some sort of duplicate. That wasn't anything. That was all me making all those decisions. That seems like Claremont's still hating that decision uh, for the retcon. Kind of. I again it it pairs so interestingly with the what if issues that came out which came out around the same time. Mm-hmm. Um looking at that. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's also it's this is the first appearance of White Phoenix, right? Yeah, this is, uh, the I guess, as Grant Morrison would call her, the White Phoenix of the Crown, which is a very good name. Yes. So that that raises a question, and I, I was thinking about this while I was reading it and didn't really come up with a solid answer, which is whether this takes place in the White Hot Room. I want to say mm. it didn't at the time because that wasn't a concept, but now right. it super does. Like, I've got, I've got to imagine that that was something that Morrison when he was doing what research he did saw that liked the idea of, Hey, there's a place that the Phoenix goes and mm. picked up on that. I think that's a really interesting thread. So I've, I've always said that this is the first appearance of the white hot room because you know, who's going to stop me. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's not clear that that's, you know, it's not like Claremont's creating that concept here, but it does match that, uh, pretty precisely i think no, it would be the first appearance of what was later retcon to have been the white hot room yeah yep um comics everybody yeah <laughs> comics everybody uh so yeah i mean this is an interesting sort of you know claremont looking back retrospectively on the ending and you know what gene was all about um what what the dark phoenix was all about and it's um i don't know if i would call it essential yeah, is it good is the real question. Because I don't know how I feel about this. It's um, more interesting than good. Yeah, I would agree with that statement. It it does some stuff. It It's a nice little coda. I, I can see it as, you know, trying to add a happier ending to this as a reprint book. Especially this being the last of the vignettes that they would do. Uh, but I don't think it works great as a story. Well, it's tricky because 
yeah, the, the character of death in this, uh, you know, in these couple pages just really isn't all that interesting, you know, and they're sort of throwing platitudes back and forth at each other and talking about this, um, you know, kind of existential crisis of being the Phoenix. But I, I don't know that anything is really resolved here. You There's know? also no real reason for it to be a comic. Mm. Like oh, It yeah. feels like someone took what was supposed to be a short story, just a, a pro short story, and gave it comics trappings. But the, the medium just doesn't really do anything for it. Yeah, I mean, even like, sure, they have a conversation while he's... Uh, tentatively building a building, but like there's no movement, no action, nothing more than a conversation in this. Like well, I guess I get the there's metaphor, nothing, but there's nothing that having that the the visuals do that couldn't be done as efficiently or, or better with text. Like it's not there. Are, there are stories where not a lot happens and where there's nothing spectacular that are fun. There sure. are quiet stories that are really good as comics, and this this just feels like a weird weird fit for the medium. Well, especially because the symbolism involved here is kind of mixed. Um, you know, we have all of this symbolism of him building and her building, but the story begins and ends with a playing card motif, um, which why he has the cards, why they are showcasing elements of her life. It, it, it and, and especially the last page of this, which is really like a, a quick montage, nine panels of Madeline Pryor um in sinister's lab is just a it's i don't know none of it really fits really well to me so i think i think that would fit better if you were reading classic x-men uh at the time because he was doing a lot of work setting up claire or setting up sinister and some of this stuff that was going on with inferno because mm -hmm. this would have happened the year after inferno or right yeah. around the same time right right so that this would have been trying to be contemporaneous with that. Uh, but yeah, I think as a standalone coda to this doesn't work incredibly well. No, I it's think... like he's trying to draw a straight line between some of these different events he's done. And it, it just, uh, I just don't think it's successful. It's Donnie Darko director's cut syndrome. Ooh. Sometimes it's better <laughs> when you don't explain it. 100% uh, agree on that one. Now we have we have a couple other quiet issues on this list, uh, and I'm looking around at them. At 163, we got Wolverine Volume Three, Number Six, the one where Wolverine and Nightcrawler talk at a bar, and the cover has Nightcrawler looking uh looking a little horny. <laughs> That's the beer bottle on the table issue, right? That's the beer bottle on the table issue. Yes, yeah, Sandra Beach. Um, I don't know. I don't think this is as good as that. As that, I mean, I that. I think it's as good. As, yeah. This this has a certain level of like illogic to it that I, I don't think is helping it very much. So is it, is it better or worse than number one eighty two Generation X sixty three Monet Vampire Hunter? Oh man, that, <laughs> that has a that has a title going for it. It's a very <laughs> good true. title. It's a boring story, but it's a good title. Um, da, da, I'm gonna da, have da, to da. basically bow out of that ranking because I am not as I'm not conversant enough with Generation X to make a solid call. Uh, here's the thing. Generation X rules. No, uh, yeah, I, I know that. The entire no, way. It, no, Larry, Larry Hama does some Larry Hama stuff, which means it's very <laughs> good or very bad and nowhere in between. Uh, um, let's see. What else is on this? Oh, you know what? Is this better or worse than Spider-Man team up number one? The one that we keep forgetting happened. Where do we have that ass? 
Oh, um, 200. Yeah, I've mm, we're definitely in the right realm. You know, like this has about as much impact as that Cable and Wolverine Mignola homage from Marvel team up. Um, it's it's not as bad as 203 I Lucifer. No, from the Silver Age. Uh, and it's not as character assassiny as IVX. That's fair. Is it better or worse than the New Mutants era of Fall of the Mutants? Which, fun fact, was the first episode of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men that I had a question answered on. Oh, well, congratulations to you. <laughs> I know, I'm very proud. Do you remember what it was? I have literally no idea, Jay. That was like four years ago. Oh, man, now I want to dig through because I've got all of the outlines still. I would say that Doug dying... It was about the third Summer's Brother. That's It's very on brand uh, to ask an Adam X-based question, isn't it? Dang. Dang. Bit. Dang, man. I'm going to put Fall of the Mutants, New Mutants ahead of this. Yeah, I just think that it has more more resonance and and it means more, even if it's not a great story. I can't put it. I can't put it below IVX. Uh, No. IVX has got a couple of good issues, but boy, howdy, does it kind of fumble there at the end. It is problematic. (laughs) (laughs) So is this our new 202? This is our new 202 uh, classic X-Men 43. Uh, nice. and the last one we wanted to talk about was a couple of what if issues. Uh, this is what if the what if Jean Grey had never died and what if Phoenix had rose again? It's a two parter what if, which is kind of an oddity with that line. But I really like this the space that it gives this story. The first one stands alone pretty well. It can it can end at the end of of the first part, but the second mm-hmm. one is the one that I think is more interesting by a pretty wide margin. Now yeah, it's. Cr- it's credited as the first issue being plot a plot by Claremont, though I think that's because the first like six pages are just the Dark Phoenix saga uh, again. And then yeah, I was uh, going to say, I don't think he's actively involved in the creation of this comic book, but they well, still and, credit him that way. Well, then because they use the psychic lobotomy option. Right. 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 Yep. And then uh, George uh, Carragone does the pl- uh, plotting and scripting for both issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rod Ramos on pencils. Uh, Jan, An- Jan Anton Harps on inks for the first issue, issue uh, 32. And uh, Jimmy Palmiotti on inks for uh, 33. He would go on to do many things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and this is actually, I, I always find this interesting. This is the second time that What If has done what if Phoenix had lived? Because in volume one, they did it. Uh, they did a story of it. It's not the same story, um, but it ended with Phoenix basically just eating the earth. Um, and this goes in a very different direction. This one does something that not a lot of other stories that look at what ifs with Phoenix do, which is acknowledge that at this point, the Phoenix isn't Gene. And mm-hmm. the point that comes at the end of the first half is mastermind attempting to murder murder gene who who at that point is is depowered and not being able to or her coming back with the realization that oh no she's not gene she's phoenix right and going and in a moment of sort of intense indecision basically accidentally destroying gene gray's body and continuing to live her but as her but with the knowledge that she's actually phoenix yeah that's a cool cool moment it's a hell of a twist to the story, and it's not only a hell of a twist to the story, but it's a hell of a of a um, subversion of 
Jean's original death and the way that worked around it. You know, the mandate that, that Phoenix had to die because of this. And the only way Jean could come back was if Jean and Phoenix were separate. Having Phoenix survive, destroy Jean, and then go on to basically be a fundamentally positive force and really struggle with that and have that moral reckoning on her own is is a totally different direction than any other interpretation of the story has gone. And one of the things it does is put put Jean at the center of the story mm-hmm. in terms of perspective, not just focus, which is great. I mean, I'm I'm on record as one of the stories that I tend to like best about Jean Grey are the ones that instead of making her being be the character who everyone is looking at, have her be the character through whom we're seeing everything else. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 a really interesting story. I, I like the setup of that, and I like the payoff because you know once you have Jean, you know Phoenix. We're gonna call her Phoenix uh, when we're talking about the Phoenix Force Jean version, and not the one in Jamaica Bay, because I've just realized how difficult that will be to disambiguate uh, for someone who hasn't read this story. Uh, but yeah. you know when when Phoenix goes and finds Jean's body in Jamaica Bay and makes that decision to say, "No, I'm gonna be Jean now." Yeah, she doesn't even do it consciously, she, or she doesn't destroy it consciously. Right. But she does consciously decide to keep on living as Jean. Right. Once you get past that point, you can have Phoenix go in a direction that's a bit more intense, a bit different than I think most people would expect Jean to go with. Uh, you get a point where there is a, uh, you know, an anti-mutant uh, you know, politician that Jean has him change his mind. She Those does and, this secretly, though, too, because all of the other X-Men think, still think that she's completely depowered. Right. So she's living this, like, secret life, and you get a lot of this internal conflict. You get you get the conflict that you're supposed to get in, like, a good ap- adaptation of the Phoenix uh, saga, where it's, like, what's going on internally with her. You get to see that actually play out in a way that has real consequences that aren't immediately going to turn her into a, you know, star-eating firebird. Like, you get to see that slow progression, even if it's only over two issues, and it works real well. And she doesn't lose it again. I think that's one of the most interesting parts of it, is she, there, she eventually leaves Earth at the, at the end of the second issue. She, she says, yeah, I can't do this. I need to go off and be in the cosmos, because honestly, this power level is too big for something terrestrial. Gotta go before I destroy everything. But, but she's never, she, never lo- she never fully loses control. Like, she kills a couple people deliberately, Mm-hmm. And in fairly justified circumstances, she she um, takes out the Shadow King at one point. There's a Love gra- fair. Guy's there a is, jerk. There is one <laughs> of my favorite moments in the second part of the story is is when Wolverine does the I gotta kill you for the good of everything, and it just doesn't take. And she's like, nope, nope, sorry, Phoenix. Well, I was gonna say, I think a huge part of these two issues, and you you know, Jay, you've already insinuated this, is that it's all about Jean's agency. Yeah. You know, the story in the first issue begins with Magneto wanting to give Jean back her powers um, and to harness the energy of the Phoenix. Doesn't work out. Uh, Mastermind comes back, and we realize very quickly the Mastermind is being controlled by Shadow King. Doesn't work out. You know, Wolverine is going to try and take her out because he knows that she's the Phoenix, and, you know, we've run in this scenario before. Doesn't take. So, you know, and eventually she gets ownership of herself, um, even by destroying the body that's in Jamaica Bay, and eventually frees herself from Earth. Uh, but it's, not without facing the consequences of like her having massive power. You get the same yeah. dynamic because she kind of causes a Days of Future Past. 
not yeah. not not intentionally, but you know, she starts the dominoes down that path, which I look that's that's a very good comic book thing where you think the what ifs about you know one thing and it turns out oh no it's like three other things too yeah love it it's like it's like playing a greatest hits album no i was gonna say i i appreciate that you know when we've talked about what ifs in the past inevitably what ifs always end with like the end of the world i mean almost inevitably like the world yeah, is everyone over. dies yeah. pretty, everyone always dies easy out and what's cool about this one is that it works in little pieces of continuity, like what they do with Rachel. Um, you know, they're incorporating some of the nineties costumes into this storyline, which is interesting. You get this really great cameo of destiny, um, throughout the story. And I don't know, it's kind of fresh in that way. It's, it's retelling the, the canon in a new way. That's fun. It also leaves us with a world that I really want more stories set in. Oh Yeah. This, this sort of, not not exactly post-Days of Future Past, but Gene, Gene triggers the, the rise of the Sentinels, but also takes them down. And ultimately, some of the X-Men are alive, but not the same ones. And Rachel is about six or seven, and Scott's raising her. And also, by, by partway through the second half, they all know she's Phoenix and not the original Gene. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're not, like, good with it, but, no, they, but they, they've they, accepted it. Yeah, well, they they get that she's the person they've been living alongside, and however this thing works out, comp- however complicatedly this works out, she's still, you know, it's 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 not pretty and it's not pleasant, but it's also not cut and dried that she's an imposter just because she's not exactly what she was was claiming to be. Yeah, Scott Scott goes so f- far to say that you know it it matters that you're still the woman I married, the mother of my child. Whatever you are, I will always love you. And I, I think that that's important. Like it yeah. addresses the retcon, but also realistically says this is the character that they went through those experiences with. So you can't just ignore that. Well, and this, is, a, this is a man who is canonically very chill about his wife growing spontaneous tentacles. <laughs> that, <laughs> that is true. Yes. <laughs> I, I, li- I like that it's just that refreshing thing because you, you think the entire story, because they build it up like with Rachel having these weird thoughts and feelings about her not being her mom and all this stuff. And you think that that's going to be like the crux point. That's going to turn it into, okay, and now the world's on fire and everything's bad. And it doesn't. And I like that subversion. It's really refreshing. I do wish that we had a, maybe a different art team on these. I mean, what if never, it's usually like a proving ground. Uh, for artists, uh, they're not putting like top tier people on this. And Rod Ramos is doing a fine job. You know, the, the storytelling is good on this, but it, it's clearly not, you know, like upper echelon Marvel art um, on these two issues. And I think that if it had, you know, maybe a, a you know, a next level artist on this, um, it, it could really sell it even more than, than it does. God, can you imagine the John Bolton version of this? Oh my God. Be very good. That would be crazy. Right. Um, It it really could use something like that. It it doesn't necessarily take away from the story, but I just think, you know, it it could be better um, if it had that extra push. Um, But I think this is good. We've talked about some very bizarre. What if stuff before Um, we have a couple of them on our list. Um, The worst of which is down at two twenty six, which was what if Wolverine was Lord of the vampires during Inferno. Which is, <laughs> this is better than that. It's very, very bad. Um, it's I, not better than what if Wolverine was just regular Lord of the Vampires at 47. It's between now, those two. Yeah, at 47, we have what if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires and at 117. Oh, I love that issue. 
We have what if uh, the X Men stayed in Asgard, um, which I, is I a cool follow up. Better to than Asgard. the Asgard one. I, I think agree. The Asgard one yeah. is fun, fun moments, mm-hmm. uh, and a, it's a nice little what a what if normally is and what you enjoy about them. But this, I honestly, I was really enjoying how the story was progressing and some of the swerves that it took. Uh, yeah. I what I think is similar that. on this list. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I don't think it's better than what if Wolverine was Lord of the Vampires, though. Very few I mean, things are. That yeah. is such a ridiculously over the top story that's so much fun. So it's got, it's got one of my all time favorite first page lines, which is vampires may already be in control of America's nuclear arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> like, like that's where they're starting the from. Yeah. I, I think we had this a Doctor Strange Punisher. It's uh, it's worth your time. We had this argument when we first uh, talked about that issue, and we I'm still trying to figure out how straight was Roy Thomas actually playing this because I can't tell. I can't tell if that's just he's saying we're starting from here and we're running with it, or if he knew what he was doing. Because with that's, Roy, I could see it go both. That's ways. kind of the beauty of Roy Thomas. You can never be entirely certain there. <laughs> um. What I think this is oddly similar to, Adam yeah. and Jay, I'm just used to saying Adam because normally there's just two of us. That's how it works. I'm putting too much thought into that one specific uh, phrasing. Uh, but number 97 is Jean Grey, 8 through 11, Psych Wars uh, with uh, Hopeless. And I forget who the artist on that one was. Uh, is, it, is it Perez? No. Um, oh. uh, I'd have to look it up. Um, yeah, I. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know. I think this, it's so interesting. Like this is such a weird story. It's not necessary, but it has a great deal of depth. And if you're an X-Men fan, you're going to like love the little call outs that you get throughout this story. Um, it's far more in context with like, did you guys read battle world? Um, year what was it uh, years of future past years of future past. Like I almost get that kind of a vibe from this, you know? I think this is better than that. The thing I'm, I'm the the two stories that I'm looking for on your ranking that I don't think are there, which are unfortunate because they're the ones I'd, I'd put it with, are um, the Trial of Jean Grey arc and yep. Phoenix Resurrection. Phoenix Resurrection is on our list. It's yeah. lower. It is. It's uh, a lot lower. Okay, than I'm, so, I'm text. I'm text searching for Resurrection and not finding it. That's fine. I yeah. there's like a non insignificant yeah. chance I misspelled Resurrection on this list. Oh no, I see it. It's one twenty four. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it's similar to Phoenix Resurrection, but I I have some specific qualms about how Phoenix Resurrection runs. Uh, mm-hmm. In so much as I think the inconsistency in the art team uh, really holds it back, and I think that there I don't think it fully pays off on the setup of the first few issues. Uh, I generally like the story, uh, but I think if I'm looking at this, I don't think this is better than 81, which is Murder at the Mansion. Nope. It's probably better than that time the X-Men met Santa Claus before uh, he sent them out into space uh, to give Gene Phoenix powers. The uh, the 1991 Marvel holiday special at number 88 right now. Yes. Um, I don't know if I would put it at ahead of 86, which is uncanny 143, which is the Christmas uh, demon story. No, um, I don't think Kitty... it's I don't think it's that high. No. But is it better than All New Wolverine Annual One, which is the body swap between Lara Kinney and Gwen Spider Stacy? Spider Gwen, the, the yeah. character that my three year old thinks is the better Spider Man, which is not Fair. a bad thing. It's just a wild world that I live in. <laughs> That's terrific, though. It's That's very, awesome. it's very good. But like, 
I'm like I bought Spider Gwen's first appearance just off the shelf, so it's weird to me to think that oh yeah, the fruit of my loins like loves this character. It's we're we're they're becoming the relevant generation. Eventually, we're gonna be we're gonna be the weird old people who remembered Spider Man mostly <laughs> as Mary. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't want I don't want to be old though. I don't want to grow up. It's so Too late, rough. Zach. Too late, Zach. They've already passed me. There's other generations who are like doing things now. I don't like it. <laughs> I want people to still complain about millennials, damn it. Oh, they do. Um, That's the bizarre part. <laughs> and we're all like in our late 30s. Do you know how young Zach is, Jay? 12, 15. <laughs> Adam, 27. Let's not get into it. But <laughs> is it is it better is it better than the uh, the Wolverine and Spider-Gwen body swap story? I'm going to say yes. I, yeah, think I think that so. there's more going on here, but I would I would say 86 is probably my ceiling just because like that is a really great standalone issue with Kitty running through the mansion and you know, it, it's really cool. It's classic. I think that seals it then. This is our new yeah. number 87. What if Phoenix 32 and 33? Nice. And that was that was fun. Uh Now we got we got Jay on and we want to just as we wrap up this episode talk about in a in like four days from now uh there's a dark phoenix movie coming out jay what are your what are your thoughts on that because i've got thoughts i think by the time this episode goes up i will have seen it because i'm going to a review of review screening next monday nice Um, because i'm i'm reviewing it for, for polygon so i did a really good job of having no expectations for this for a really long time and then the the teaser trailer or the, the the trailer that was attached to um to Endgame came out and I saw it. Yeah, so I am I I don't know what to think about this because I'm I'm really done with the Fox X Men movies. I've been done with the Fox X Men movies basically since after the second one, um, and I left Avengers Endgame mostly just feeling really relieved. It's like okay, that's done. And I, I am sort of expecting that that's the way I'm going to feel coming out of this. What I, I, I just, man, I really, I don't want to have hopes and expectations for this. I try really hard not to. And then I can just go in, watch it, see it for what it is, enjoy what I enjoy, and, and leave. But it seems like they get the scale of Phoenix mm-hmm. in ways that, well, I mean... X-Men 3 obviously didn't, but in ways that are important to the Phoenix saga working. And they get the scale of Phoenix outside of and but as connected to Jean. And I really love Sophie Turner as Jean Grey. I think that's brilliant casting. She's done an amazing job so far. Oh, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm really, really excited to see her in this and to see her play gene and phoenix through the dark phoenix saga like that's that's gonna be pretty i think that's gonna be pretty tremendous no matter what else happens in the movie yeah that's that's pretty much my exact expectation at this point too it's you know what uh by the end of game of thrones sophie turner was the only actress that i cared about member of the entire cast to be honest so i want to see her do really well in this and i love this story but we'll see she plays a Jean who's eerie in ways that I think she needs to be and almost never is. Mm-hmm. 
and yeah, yeah seeing seeing where that seeing where that goes like when when she actually gets to to let go as dark phoenix is is gonna be neat you yeah. guys are being really positive i am impressed um <laughs> i you, you gotta try positivity man you gotta just no go in I, with i'm hope. in I'm just and talking I, about the parts I'm excited about. I'm really yeah. worried that it's going to be the equivalent of X-Men 3, Women, Am I Right? <laughs> well, I mean, having that, just yeah. recently watched a little bit of, of Last Stand, I think it was on Sci-Fi the other night, and I, I was like, wow, this is a real train wreck. And the fact that we've given the keys back to the screenwriter of The Last yeah. Stand um, and let him write and direct this thing, um, it, it has me worried. Um, I think rereading the book over the last couple of days has really made me just outright curious, you know, so I'm putting two different things together here. I mentioned earlier in the show how I'm just, I'm always just absolutely stymied as to how anybody even would approach this in terms of adapting it into another medium um, because there's so much going on and what, it, what are yeah. different readers thinking are the important threads that they should put to, you know, put into a, an X-Men movie or, or converting it into an animated show or something like that. Um, you know, the animated series, I guess, had the, the option of just being literal. Um, whereas other media have had to kind of distill it into something else. So I'm really just curious going in, like, what is it going to be? And am I going to see something that is, you know, connected mildly are they making interesting choices um very interested to see what chastain's character is all about um you know just how are they even approaching it um but as many people who you know listen to this show know i was no fan of x-men apocalypse uh, <laughs> i was actively angry leaving the theater so i i'm really hoping that i don't have that same feeling um and that i, I can have a good time at the movies I the the big test in this and the thing that I think I've I've given up on like I will be stunned if it accomplishes this is making is is sticking the landing of the Dark Phoenix saga in a non-serial context because mm -hmm. you mentioned the animated series and so much of what makes the Dark Phoenix saga work is the build up is the mm -hmm. fact that it's coming at the end of this incredibly long long game even if you drop into it, like I feel like you can you can pick it up and read it and still get that impact from 137, but it's with the understanding that it's of of what it's building on and how how deliberately and over how much time that was built. And you know, that's not the case in the movies. We had a Phoenix Flare moment in Apocalypse. Right. Um, but that was Apocalypse was really Apocalypse was a mess of a movie. It sure well, was. It sure was two hours of film. Well, and Apocalypse is essentially another origin movie, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like X-Men Apocalypse ends with the X-Men becoming the X-Men for the first time. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I, I'm going to go in with an open mind. I hope you guys enjoy it um, or, or get something out of it. Or even if it's a Wolverine Origins type <laughs> mess, but it has value. That's, you know? Look, look, look. If it's as, if it's as bad I, as X-Men Origins Wolverine in the ways that X-Men Origins Wolverine is bad, I will be very happy leaving the theater. Yeah, we're going to be yeah, ourselves. No, that's, 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 but, but would it be, I feel like that would maybe be the Curse of the Mutants movie. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Please let like, us have that that's, one day. That's, that's the Dracula, or, um, that's Wolverine Lord of the Vampires, the movie. <laughs> 
it's no matter what, whether it's good or bad, I'm going to be interested in seeing how they do it. Like that's at this point, yes. that's what I go to X Men movies for is is to see how they approach these iconic moments and stories and characters and the weight of the expectations. It's a lot of the same things that I read the comics for. Yep, yep, right. I can appreciate that. Oh, so we'll we'll see how it goes, guys. Uh, I think as we wrap up, the first thing I want to do is say, Jay, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for having me. This was was great. This was really, really fantastic to get to revisit and talk about this. And you guys are awesome. And yeah, thank you so much for inviting me on. Thanks, no Jay. Problem. Now, if people want more of your brand of X-Men analysis, what should they do? Well, you can find us at Explain the X-Men with no beginning E, so just Explain the X-Men. Pretty much everywhere we're on... Um, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, your friendly neighborhood podcatcher. You can also listen to our episodes directly at our website, which is just explainthexmen.com. And no matter how you spell that, it'll redirect to us, um, as does petercorpo.com. Oh, really? That's <laughs> it great. It does. I keep on meaning to put something there, or just like to get someone to, <laughs> to draw a beach pin up of him. And it's just, just hangs out there. But no, right, right now it just redirects to the podcast. And uh, we are Explain the X-Men on Twitter and Tumblr. And there is there is also a mutant Re- revolution Discord, which is currently I think on pause as far as invitations, but but periodically invites new folks. Um, and which which actually is is sort of a, a joint project. Zach is one of the admins there too. It's true. And yeah, we have, have good folks. And I I think the next convention we're going to be is at, is FlameCon. So yeah, come to that. It's great. That is awesome, guys. Seriously, check out check out uh, Jay and Miles explain the X Men. It's the podcast that is the reason why this podcast exists. I think that's true for Adam and me. That's very true. Uh, speaking of this podcast, if you liked it, you can go on over to XavierFiles.com. That's where I have all the latest and greatest in X-Men news, reviews, uh, wild mass guesses about very dumb things. Uh, <laughs> has been my brand recently. I've just kind of leaned into it. Uh, you can also go to Twitter.com and look for at Xavier Files. If you like the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash Xavier Files. Uh, you toss in a couple bucks a month. We do an entire episode crafted around one of your suggestions. Just like next week, how we're doing a thing about the X-Babies, which I'm it's going to be a whole something different than what we talked about <laughs> this week. I'm excited Adam, for that. Adam, what, what are you up to? Where can people find you? All right, guys, you can always follow me on Twitter at Arthur Stacy. I've got new pages of Bish and Jubes, the cross time conundrum coming out every Monday at adamrec.tumblr.com. And if you want art in your inbox every day uh, from yours truly, you can head over to patreon.com slash adamrec. Um, and I, I just want to take a second, Jay, to thank you. Um, it's really an honor having you on the show. Like Zach said, I don't think we'd be doing this show. I don't even know if I would have been doing Bish and Jubes um, without you and Miles getting me so back into the X-Men. So uh, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for all that. Uh, I think I've told you this in person, but I just wanted to reiterate it on air. Thank you. And I can't tell you how much it means to hear that. I mean, we started the show because we really love this thing and we like talking about a thing that we love making it accessible and connecting to other people who like it. So the fact that it's not only brought people, but, but like branched off and become this amazing fractal network of pe- people making cool X-Men stuff is the most amazing outcome I think neither of us could have anticipated. <laughs> yeah, well, it rules. Uh, and I think we're all happy about that. Yes. Uh, so yeah, I guess I already dropped the spoiler that next week we talk about X-Babies. X-Babies. Uh, which, man, 
I still can't. When I looked up, I forgot. I can't believe what a tonal shift that's going to be. Uh, but we'll, we'll make that work. Until then, guys, this has been Bally Adam, and we hope you survived the experience. Get it!